1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if you will, please stand with me as we pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of God's Word this morning. Let us pray together. Now, blessed God, we ask for your blessing. We ask, O Lord, that you would continue this morning, particularly do a work in us to hear and to perceive and to understand and Lord, to have your word in our hearts sown to bear fruit. Lord, that we would receive the word with joy and gladness and that we would by that bear much fruit. Lord, that this word this morning would help us grow in our understanding of our life and our walk before you, but grow in our understanding of who you are and the glory that you have in yourself. And Lord, the need we have of you, which is a great need. Let this word this morning humble us and exalt you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I want to read this morning from two verses. Verses 16 and 17. Hear now the word of the living God. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We continue this morning to look at that triad of commandments. Paul in these two verses have has given to us a group of injunctions that we ought to take note of first of all because they are commandments they are not suggestions they are moral obligations they are good works And they are the very thing that true and living faith wants to do. Last week we looked at the injunction of rejoicing and what it meant to rejoice. That rejoicing in itself was an outward expression of true inward delight and pleasure. Paul wants us to take pleasure and delight in the living God and in His Son, Jesus Christ, in the salvation that we have in Jesus. How secure we are in His mediation and what a blessing it is to have the revelation of God. God wants His people to rejoice. Brothers and sisters, He wants us here to rejoice. I don't want you to tell yourself or try to opt out of rejoicing. It's easy to say, well, I obey. I'm an obedient servant of the Lord and that's enough. That's not what that word means. That word is not just speaking of a general obedience. The word itself means to offer an outward expression of joy, rejoicing. And we've done that this morning, haven't we? In our hymns, in the singing, 
that we have participated in, we have offered up an outward expression of joy. And so the question is, were our hearts into it? Were our minds engaged in what we were singing? Were we engaged? Or were we wandering off somewhere? Were we thinking about other things versus the task of rejoicing in the living God? This morning, we're going to look at the second injunction, and that is the injunction to pray always. Or as the New American Standard interprets the Greek, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Now the lesson, or my sermon this morning, has two purposes. Now the first purpose is to take anyone here, a lot of our young believers, our young folks, those who maybe have sort of forgotten what the Scripture teaches, and and give a lesson, and hopefully uh, we will be informed. I mean, the first the first scope or the 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 first point of this instruction this morning is to help us understand what true biblical prayer is i think that's important the basics but also for older believers who have prayed a lot who have offered up many prayers in your Christian experience to remind you of the fundamentals. To remind you of that deep truth and communion that prayer offers to the believer when he and she engages in true biblical prayer. How that impacts their lives when we commune with the living God. Maybe your sensibilities to prayer have been weakened. How often do you pray? How, how much did you pray this morning in preparation to meet God in worship? How often do you pray during the week for that engagement of worship, for the understanding of His Word, for the grace to live with sinners? How often do you pray? That's the real question, isn't it? That's what Paul is simply addressing here. And we know that in order to have a a vibrant, lively, faithful, exuberant church that we must engage in these duties. We must be willing to rejoice. And we must be in the habit of of praying. We might simply put it this way. The point of my sermon this morning for all of us, no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we become men or women or boys and girls that pray a lot. Pray a lot. That is to develop a habit of praying. To develop a character trait of being someone who prays. That's what we want to do. That's our goal. 
It's not simply to hear a sermon that is interesting on prayer. But it's that we would take that word and we would truly receive it into our hearts and that we would seek to be what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us to be. It's the work that Paul says over in chapter 2 that God is doing in us. In us. I'm hoping that this quote from John Calvin in his section on prayer in his Christian Institutes will help excite you as we get into our lesson. Listen carefully to these words. He writes, Accordingly, we see that nothing is set before us as an object of expectation from the Lord, which we are not enjoined to ask of Him in prayer. So true it is that prayer digs up those treasures which the gospel of our Lord uncovers to the eye of faith. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, what's Calvin saying here? Calvin says, everything... That God has revealed in His Word in Christ is set before the believer. And that in faith, all of those promises are yours. And guess what you have to do? Ask for them. That there is a rich storehouse of blessings that are for you. And Calvin, this reformed Giant, father of the Reformation. What does he say? These are your promises, and all you have to do is ask for them. Does he sound stingy to you? Does he sound like somebody who is afraid to ask God for something? I don't think he does. Listen to what he goes on to say. The necessity and utility of this exercise of prayer, no words can sufficiently express. Assuredly, it is not without cause. Our Heavenly Father declares that our only safety is to call upon His name. Since by it we invoke the presence of His providence to watch over our interest. Of His power to sustain us when weak and almost fainting, of His goodness to receive us into favor, though miserably loaded with sin, in fine, call upon Him to manifest Himself to us in all His perfections. Hence, Calvin says, admirable peace and tranquility are given to our consciences For the straits by which we are pressed being laid before the Lord, we rest fully satisfied with the assurance that none of our evils are unknown to Him. He knows us perfectly. And that He is both able and willing to make the best provision for us. I mean, Calvin says, listen, when you pray to God, He knows you perfectly. And yes, we come, how often do we come? Burdened with sin. Oftentimes, let's be honest, that's when we pray, isn't it? I really think, I would, I would classify this congregation as 
Well, affluent compared to the world, right? When we compare our lifestyles with that of the majority of the people living on this planet, I would say we're affluent. Yet, how many affluent people really seek after the Lord? Did not Jesus say it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God? And you said, well, Pastor Jess, you know me. We're not rich. Yeah, but we are rich. We may not be as rich as the person sitting next to us or as the next church or as the next house. But brothers and sisters, comparatively speaking, what do you lack that you don't have? Most of us get what we want. And how has that dampened, nullified, and erased our need for prayer? These are real questions that need to be answered. What is prayer? I'm going to give you two definitions. They are very similar, and they come from the shorter and larger catechism. The first one from the shorter. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for the things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That's a very good definition. An offering up of our desires to God. For things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. What about the larger catechism? Prayer, so slightly different, listen to it. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of His Spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. They're essentially the same. One addressing the will of God and the other addressing the help of the Holy Spirit. This morning, I want to give you seven directives for true prayer. Seven directives. Seven directives that we must see as basic in order for us to be engaged in biblical or Christian prayer. Without these, it will not be a Christian prayer. These are essential. Okay? Number one, true prayer is directed to the triune God only. True prayer is directed to the triune God only. Uh, Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Psalm 62 and verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him God is a refuge for us. The Bible directs us to pray, and there are dozens of other Scripture, and we don't have time to address all of those. So I'll just be giving you one here and there to aid you in these directives. We are to call upon God alone. And not just God generally, but God particularly. That is, God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? Well, let me give you a practical reason. We have a day in this nation called the National Day of Prayer. On that day, all different kinds of religions will be invited to the White House, the capital of this nation, to pray for this nation. To invoke blessing and prosperity and protection upon us as a nation and a people. I ask you, brothers and sisters, when any non-Christian is invited to offer up prayers, whether it be in the name of the Great Spirit, or in the name of Allah, or in the name of Buddha, or in the name of humanity itself, is it prayer? The Bible tells us that we must direct our prayers to Him and Him alone. Why? Well, let me give you three easy reasons. Number one, because God and only God is omnipotent. Only God is all-powerful. What what does all-powerful have to do with our praying? Well, listen, if we're going to offer up petitions and requests to God... He needs to be powerful enough to answer those petitions. He needs to be powerful enough to intervene into our lives and to give us what He desires to give us. Listen, it's like this. When we are small children, we think our fathers are the strongest men that are alive. Nobody can beat my daddy kind of thing. As We believe that if our daddy tells us something, guess what? It's going to happen. He can fulfill it. He can do it. We have so much trust in Him. We grow up. As we get older, what do we learn? Our dads are just men. They, they can't just do anything. God's not like that. God can do everything He is pleased to do. Everything He is pleased to do. He can answer every prayer according to his will he can give every promise that he has set forth to, that he has offered he can give all that Christ all that God has promised to do in Jesus he is able to do so when God makes a promise how does that affect our praying he can do what he says he can do secondly God is omniscient he knows everything God even knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. He knows all things. And the Bible says that He, go, he, not, he not only governs this world, but He knows what our true feelings and emotions are. And we can't fool Him. We can't trick Him. He is the great searcher of our hearts and knows us perfectly and completely. He knows everything. If you're going to ask God for wisdom, shouldn't He know everything? Why would you pray to God if He didn't know everything and ask Him for anything or ask Him for advice or wisdom and counsel? Now, when we pray and ask God for wisdom and counsel, we're praying because He does know everything. He knows the beginning from the end and everything in the middle. 
And thirdly, His omnipresence. And God is everywhere. That doesn't mean God is in the tree or the grass or the butterfly. But He's everywhere present. And He is particularly present with His people. Close in His condescension to them in favor. Which is to what? Stimulate us to ask Him for things in prayer. Because He's close. He's with us. Secondly, not only should true prayer be directed to God alone as a trinity, but that it is to be in the name of Christ. Christian prayer comes through a mediator. And by Christ's mediation... His mediation is the source, brothers and sisters, of all of our encouragement. It is in Christ that you and I have been given access to God in a favorable way. Amen. It's in Christ that we have been strengthened from a life of sin and sorrow and misery to a life now of victory and peace and unity. It's in Christ that we have happiness. It's in Christ that we have been adopted into God's family. It's in Christ that we have hope over death. It's in Christ that we persevere unto the end to receive the great reward of our salvation. On that great day when Jesus comes back. You see, brothers and sisters, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and following, it, it calls upon us to pray and pray in Christ. Listen to these words. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, Christian prayer is praying in the name of Jesus. Now let me add this one point. Before I move on. That doesn't mean that if you attach in Jesus' name at the end of your, at the end of your prayer, that God is going, oh, okay, that's the magic. Think, that's the magic key. Okay, I'm going to answer it because you said in Jesus' name. No. No. Because people can use Jesus' name wrongly. If you think attaching Jesus' name to the end of your prayer makes God accept it, then you have used Jesus' name in vain and are guilty of sin. It means nothing. You've treated a holy name and the Son of God as if He is some magic trick. And that is a sinful thing to do. The... Scripture reference for that is Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? and Did we not do these great things? And Jesus says, I don't know you. See, they use Jesus' name, but they use it wrongly. 
So when we invoke the name of Christ in our prayers, beloved, we must invoke a sense of communion with this Christ that we have with Him and that we are coming through Christ to the living God because He has made a way for us and praise His name for making a way. Thirdly, by the help of the Holy Spirit, by the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you the scripture references. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Zechariah 12, verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 18. Why are we to pray by the help and aid of the Holy Spirit? Well, beloved, because we are weak. Because we are ignorant. We are weak. We need, we need strength. We are ignorant. We need knowledge and understanding. We need wisdom. We need to grow up. We need to mature. We need to walk more closely to the Lord so that our walk is in a manner more worthy of His glory and the gospel that we believe in. We need the Holy Spirit because we need our hearts trained in holiness. Our hearts must be trained in holy affections. They don't come overnight. And let me tell you this, they don't come through worshiping God a few times. You know, you can't say, well, out of a month, I give one good Sunday all oh, my attention. And the other Sundays, I'm looking around at the woodwork and I'm, I, you know, my mind's off wandering in other places. That's not what does it it's this continual this continual exercise of habit of desire and the holy spirit is to aid us in training our hearts in holy and religious affections that we truly when we say we love purity we mean it it's not just christian speech it's not just the things that we all want to hear from each other it's it's sincere. It's sincere. And brothers and sisters, this is necessary if we're going to pray acceptably before God. We must have the Holy Spirit to aid us and to help us in praying because we without God are pitiful and weak and will not offer anything worthy to Him, worth listening to. You know how many times have we been all guilty of mumbling before the Lord? We know we need to pray and we feel guilty if we don't pray, but what do we give God? Mumble jumbo. We mumble. We go through something rote to get through. Because what does that tell us about ourselves? We have no heart for religious things. We have lost the heart and the passion to pray and to commune with God. We've lost it. It's gone. At least at that moment, it's gone. Because we just want to get through with it. It's like worship. It's like anything we do that fosters and creates a habit of praise and communion and glory. When we come with such indifferences and such coldness, our hearts harden. We just want this over. 
It becomes too difficult to worship God. It becomes too difficult to commune with Him. It's too hard to feast upon the Word of God, to have something to pray about. It's just better to be like a child, a little baby. You know, I was an adult praying baby prayers when I was growing up. I was taught to pray. I wasn't even a Christian. But my father taught me to pray every night before I went to bed. And guess what I did? No matter what my activity was up until that point of laying my head down on my pillow, I prayed. And I prayed the little baby prayer that he taught me when I was a kid. Until I grew up and met Jesus. That prayer was no longer sufficient for my expression of desires. Who should we pray for? A few here. The church on earth. What are we to pray about the church? Well, we'll pray for the protection and the growth and the unity and the glory of the church. Pray that the church would not suffer scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. Pray for civil leaders. Pray for their conversion if they're not converted. If they remain unconverted, pray for their peace over the church and God's people. Pray that they would not be a hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Pray for yourselves. Pray for your brethren. Pray for your enemies. Pray for those who will come after you. But there are some you should never pray for. Never pray for the dead. You can say, well, who prays for the dead? Well, there are some Christians that believe it's okay to pray for the dead. They believe that they can beseech God to bring them out of a form of purgatory and bring them on into heaven, if you will. And that is wrong and is unbiblical. And there's nothing in Scripture whatsoever that teaches such a doctrine. So we are not to pray for those who have gone on from this life. Not only are we not to pray for the dead, but we are not to pray for that most hardened, despicable, God-hating, God-blasphemous sinner. And you say, whoa. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. This is a passage of Scripture that does cause modern Christianity a problem because modern Christianity, okay, modern Christianity is uncomfortable with God. God, they're embarrassed by God. They're embarrassed by God. And I, that is, if God does it ooh and ah over everybody and everything we do, sort of make God in our image, then we're embarrassed by His wrath, His anger, by the doctrine of hell. We're embarrassed that God would withhold grace from anyone. And as, as, a, as Christians, what do those Christians tend to do? They want to excuse and they want to make God palatable for the hardened unbeliever. But listen to 1 John here. 
Look at verse 16 of chapter 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, there is a sin that leads to death, he shall ask and God will forgive, will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that, that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now listen to this answer given by a scholar. He says, who is this person that we should not pray for? Now listen to this description. We should not pray for the person who, re- who once had received the gospel but then rejects it. By their rejection of the gospel which they once professed to embrace. An apostate. They once were professing Christians and now they reject the gospel. By their malice and envy against Christ. They have a hatred against Christ. And the way of salvation through him. And I hate the gospel. By their treating the convincing evidences of Christianity and the particular doctrines of it with blasphemy and contempt. And by their rooted hatred of all religion and professors of it. Now these men do exist. And these women exist. They're called just militant. There's a name for them today. We call them militant atheists. Not all atheists are like this. And, you know, there's even societies where they're talking about, you know, the atheists, friends of Christians. They have no problem. They just don't want to believe. They just, it's not for them, so to speak. But there's a, there's a class of atheists. Many used to be members of the church. They now have such a vehement hatred and malice for Christ and the gospel and church and Christians that they spend a lot of time and energy and resources to have it extinguished. It's uncomfortable, isn't it, to think that God has given them over to this state of no return and not to pray for them. What can we pray for? Well, we can pray for all that is lawful, All that is to God's glory and all that is to the good of the church. All that is to our own good and our own edification as well as our brothers and sisters' good and edification. But we can never pray for and ask for anything that is condemned in God's Word. Never. We can never ask for anything that God's Word condemns. Number six. Brothers and sisters, this is another essential aspect of true Christian prayer. Praying with the right attitude. Look at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Notice the attitude of the heart there. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request Let your requests be made known to God. We ought to pray with the right attitude, the right inward disposition. 
An inward disposition that does what? It acknowledges God's majesty, His awesomeness, if you will. Now, I know that's a word that's tossed around today and it means hardly little anymore, but God is truly awesome. He's awe-inspiring. When we pray, we ought to have a sense of that awesomeness and that awfulness that He is the true and living God. He created everything out of nothing. He made Himself into a man and lived a life of 30 years and offered that life upon the cross for our sins, raised Himself from the dead, ascended into heaven, seated Himself at the right hand of the Father and watches over the whole earth and is coming again to receive His own. That's awesome. He's the one that knows the beginning from the end and everything in the middle. His power, His honor, His glory, His goodness, His mercy. We ought to read stories like Rahab the harlot and be completely inspired to worship Him. Here's God sending His people into a land full of idolatry, full of all kinds of immorality and evil, and here they come to the first stronghold, and yet you have a harlot. A prostitute that professes faith in the God of Israel. And God does what? Saves her. And brings her in to live with His people. Does that not inspire you? To love Him? To want to talk to him and want to pray to him. Now, brothers and sisters, to commune with him as a father, to commune with him and listen to his promises, to desire to desire his promises to come to fruit in our own lives for ourselves. What do we think? A sense of an unworthiness. You think about the harlot who was washing the feet of our Lord with her hair in tears. And the Pharisees looked upon her as deplorable. How dare he let her touch him? And what did he say? Leave her alone. She does a good work. Her heart was broken because she was such a sinner. See, she got what these scholars didn't get. She understood one thing, and that was she was unworthy to touch Christ. I'm unworthy to even touch Him, much less speak to Him. And that's pleased the Lord Jesus and He accepted it. Brothers and sisters, do you have a sense of unworthiness and need when you pray? A sense of your own sin, a sense of a need for more submission and humility in your life. 
Do you have this sense that you need the love of God to grow and increase in your life? Do you have a sense of understanding that religious desires need to be excited? They need to be stimulated. They need to fill your mind and your heart. They need to be borne out into your life. Do you know and understand that you have a deep need of Christ, of the Father, and of the Spirit, and of the Word of God working in you because you are a sinner? And last, this last directive of biblical prayer or of Christian prayer is that true biblical or true Christian prayer is guided by the Word of God. Prayer and the Word of God go together like breathing and living. Thus, prayer and faith are inseparable. The whole Word of God is our guide to lead us in our praying. I mean, you think about coming to the Rahab the harlot. That's a great time to pray. You come even to some of those passages of judgment. It's a great time to pray. Lord, I see how much you hate sin. And I pray that you would help me hate sin as much as you. Listen to John 1 John 5.14 Now this is the confidence we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Notice that. Anything according to His will. Where do we find the will of God? In the Word of God. If we ask according to the will, the Word of God, 1 John 5.14, He Hears us. Now, what are some of the hindrances to a prayer life? There are a few. First one is unbelief. Unbelief. Can a Christian be an, can be unbelieving? Yes, at times a Christian can be unbelieving. The apostles asked the Lord Jesus to increase their faith. Lord, help us to believe. We're weak. Unbelief, praying without truly believing that God is God, that God is the answer, will answer prayer, that God is holding forth these treasures and this storehouse of promises so that He might bless you. Brothers and sisters, when we just open our mouth and yada, 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 yada in Jesus' name in unbelief, it is not an acceptable prayer. Look at James chapter 1. I don't think I'm going to get through with the lesson this morning. But I want to make these points. James chapter 1. Verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. It will be given to him, but he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. What does that word mean? It means to be double-minded. God will, God won't. 
We must be single-minded when we go to God in prayer. Single-minded. That is, Lord, I'm coming to You. I'm praying lawfully according to Your Word, and I will wait patiently for the receiving of that blessing and that promise. I will wait for it because You told me it's coming. Now, it may take an hour. It may take a week. It could take years. That's up to God. That's up to God. But let, let me say this. How many times you thought, how many times have you thought you wanted something so badly? And you go to God in prayer about it. And you didn't see God act instantly. That prayer's gone. I mean, you prayed like for four times. It's gone. You've moved on. And, and you're like, well, God ain't going to answer. We'll move on. What, is, what did God show you in His providence? You really didn't want it. Because if you really wanted it, you'd have been like the woman banging on the door of the judge wanting justice. And the judge had to get up and go, if I don't answer this woman, she's going to drive me crazy. Let me give her peace. And Christ says, this is how you should pray. How many times have you thought you really wanted something? You pray a couple of times and you move on to something else. And God is showing you, you really didn't want it. You thought you did. We need to pray in faith. I had a professor, he said this. If you pray for rain, you better walk outside with an umbrella. He made a good point. How many times do we ask God for things that we do not expect Him to answer? That's wrong. That's wrong. That is not... Do you think that's pleasing to God? Unbelief. Second is error. Error in theology and doctrine because it impacts the way we pray. I'm only going to give you one example of error because of time. Um... Having a wrong understanding of God's sovereignty may hinder your prayers. That is, well, God's sovereign. He knows everything. He's orchestrated everything. He's in control of everything. Why should I pray? He knows what I need. He knows what I want. He knows how many hairs are on my head. He knows how tall I am in the morning when I get up. He knows how tall I am in the morning when I go to bed. He knows everything. That doesn't stimulate me to pray. Wrong. Wrong. It's a wrong understanding of the sovereignty of God. Even though God is all of those things. God has ordained prayer for your personal growth and faith. He's ordained it. That means this, brothers and sisters. God has ordained your praying and your answers to those prayers. And sometimes He ordains that you don't get those blessings unless you beseech Him in a manner worthy of receiving those blessings. Meaning this. How you, you, you Think of the grandest blessing you can think of. And if you only go to God once or twice about it, what does it mean to you? But when you pray earnestly for years and years, in years. I can't tell you how many people have been saved 
by thinking, my mama, my daddy, my pastor, my elder, my friend in church has spent years on their knees praying for me. Not just an hour here and there. And God answered that prayer. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand our Bibles. We need to understand theology. God's sovereignty is not opposed to our praying. It enhances our prayer because when we ask God for things, we want a sovereign God to answer them. We want a sovereign God who knows everything, who's in control of everything, coming and answering our prayers. Working on us, because what if we're asking for the wrong things? So error, we need to make sure that we know Scripture. Second, the third thing, self-confidence, right? This person sees prayer as a formality. I'm just going to go through the motions. I'll pray before I eat, it's just a formality. I've worked for this. I bought the, the cereal. I bought the food. I got the job. I went for the interview. I got the raise. It's nothing but a formality of pietism, self-confidence. I'm praying, but I'm really trusting in myself. Other one, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness hinders our praying Because it's not a sense of humility and need. Self-righteousness is opposed to those things. When we are self-righteous, we don't come before God with humility. We don't come with an eye of His grace and mercy. Self-righteousness destroys humility. It destroys thankfulness. You think about the publican in Luke 18 where you have the the publican, the sinner, on his knees and, and he can't even look up to God and he's beating his chest and he says, Oh God, have mercy on me. And the Pharisee is standing next to him and he's looking at him with disgust thinking, God, thank you, I'm not like him. That's self righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this despicable creature. And Jesus says, who offered up prayer? The one who understood his sense and the weight of his own sinfulness. Self-righteousness destroys all that. Another one, unrepentant sin, Psalm 32, 5 and 6 This person sees himself or herself justified in holding on to certain sins like bitterness and, you know, um, uh, anger. We would pray for our enemies, right? Love our enemies. Unrepentant sin, brothers and sisters, will keep us from having our prayers answered. And the last one is a neglect of moral duties. I use 1 Peter 3 and 7. Husbands likewise dwell with them, that is your wives, with an understanding, with understanding, giving them honor to the wife and as the weaker vessel, as being heirs together in the kingdom of, uh, together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. When we neglect known moral duties, why should God answer our prayers? When we neglect to do the things that we're supposed to do in order to show love and submission and loyalty to God, our Father, why should He answer our prayers? 
It's like a child refusing to do anything the parent says and then expecting something from the parent. We know how silly that is. And we know how audacious it is, right? I'm not going to do anything you say. I'm not going to be submissive. I'm actually going to be cantankerous. But, oh, would you do this for me? It's presumptive, isn't it? And yet, how many times have we gone to God in that manner? Let me close with this. Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to develop a habit of prayer. A sensitivity to prayer. A consciousness of prayer. What does it mean to pray always? Does it mean we don't work? Does it mean we... we you know, walk around at work with our eyes closed. No, that'd be dangerous. It'd be foolish. You deserve to get fired. It, demean, it means you develop a God consciousness that is so sensitive to His communion and relationship to your life that you can burst forth in prayer at a split second, at any moment at any time, in any given situation, no matter what you're dealing with, who you're talking to, what you're facing, in your head, your heart, and even with your lips, you can call forth on God to come forth and reveal Himself. A God consciousness. A God sensitivity of His majesty, His power, His glory, His work, and His willingness to give you the storehouse of heaven in Christ. That's what it means. To live in a state of communion with God in Christ. Having a heart that is saturated and satisfied with Him. And cannot be satisfied apart from Him. I want you to notice Psalm 119 verse 11. Notice the personal communion with God here. Thy word have I hidden in my heart. You know the rest of the verse. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I what? That I what? Might not sin against you. Does he say, oh, thy word that I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin? Because, you know, sin's bad. Notice how he ended it. That I might not sin against you. See the personal element of communion there? Oh, sin's bad. But what makes sin the worst? It's an offense and an affront to God. Brothers and sisters, our God is so great. He is so glorious. And let me tell you, He's interested in you in Christ. And He wants you to be a prayerful person. He wants you to pray a lot. He wants you to think about Him. He wants you to know His Word so that at any moment you can burst forth with rejoicing, with prayers, petitions, with, with promises, understanding your weaknesses. Now listen to me. I want to ask you this question. We're going to close with this question. I hate to end it on a negative, but we are. If you treated your spouse the way you treat God in prayer, communion, or if you treat, you're not married, some of you are not married, right? We got people out here not married. If you treated your friend in conversation 
the way you treat God in prayer. Would you still be married? And would you still have a friend? You see, if we only use God when we want Him and need Him, and if we are wrote even when we do need Him, that is, we really don't even give heartfelt prayers at that point. It's the same prayers we've been offering for years like a child. Would we still be married? And would we have any friends? I hope the lesson today excites you to develop a heart and a mind of unceasing prayer. Let's pray. Father, bless us in the name of Christ and all that that entails and means for us who are Christians. May your glory ascend to the, Lord, fullness of our minds and hearts. And may that glory push and put down any self-confidence and self-righteousness, anything that opposes our communion with you, especially in prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, take your songbook and let's open them to uh, number eight. Oh, I'm sorry, number nine, songbook number nine. And let's stand and respond to the preaching of the Lord's Word.